what's up, dude? I, I got a question for you. If I asked you, what are the things that motivate you? What would you say? Do you have like a ready answer? Do you know? I have a ready-ish answer. We played RPGs all the time. So in an RPG, you're constantly trying to level up. And I would say that with me in real life, I see my life as basically an RPG, right? So I'm really excited about, you know, leveling up my fiction writing skills and like publishing a novel. I'm really excited about leveling up how many people we reach with indie hackers and like being a better founder, et cetera, et cetera. Being a better boyfriend, the list goes on and on. So like getting, getting better at stuff is your yeah. number one motivator. Exactly. What else? Just that? Motivator? I don't know. Uh, you could say the inverse. I, um, I've like fucked up in the past at various things and I'm pretty motivated at like not making the same kinds of mistakes right. that I've made in the past. It's a carrot and the stick. So I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, Brandon, and he was talking about how he met this doctor who was like uh, just like a leading surgeon who had retired and now he's an expert at pottery. And this guy, apparently when he was 24, saw somebody spinning clay to make like a pot or something or a cup or something and was so transfixed that immediately he had like an aha moment and was like, this is what I have to do. And for the rest of his life, he basically was a surgeon and then he retired and immediately went into pottery. And Brandon was saying that he does, he's never had one of these aha moments. And I think I had one of those when I was a kid, when I was like, you know, using computers. And I was like, shit, this is what I have to do. But I was thinking last week, okay, what if you break it down even further and ask what within that particular career, like you like writing, but what is it inside of writing that you like? And I guess for you, it's the leveling up experience. But for me, I picked four different things that always motivate me. And I've been like trying to mix and match them to find other things in life that I would like. So for me, they are spending time with people that I like, working on something that's like mentally challenging and engaging, like puzzles of some sort or things I don't know how to do, building some sort of cumulative project that like gets incrementally better and better over time, like building a website or building an Airbnb, like every day I go to it, it's bigger and better. That just like makes me feel good for some reason. And then number four, getting recognition from others feels good. And so if I can do anything that has all four of those, whether it's a startup or it's like an arts and craft project with my friends, like it makes me feel kind of the same level of good. And I feel like knowing this is almost like a superpower because I suddenly know like anything on earth that will motivate me just because I know the constituent parts of it. Hey, what's up, Dash? Hey, um, can I just go tell people in my kitchen to be quiet? You can do whatever you want. Sure. Loud family talk. <laughs> okay. I like her shirt. You see that? She's got a, oh, yeah, I a saw shirt. it. I saw She's it. She's got a shirt that says Dashing across the top of it, and her name is Dashel. That's cool. I need a shirt that represents my name in some way like that. Well, we got indie hackers, and you don't really need to have anything besides yeah. that. We've got like three different <laughs> It's got to say court. Her shirt literally has her name in it. Mm. Well, anyway, welcome to the show, Dashel. It's good to have you here. I'm a huge fan. You've like messaged me, I think, like three or four times on Twitter over the last year. Every time you have, I've gone to your profile. I'm like, what, what's, what's she up to? Like, what is she doing? And it's gone from like, I don't know what I'm doing. I just launched my thing. You know, I'm just happy to have it out there to like, I am the queen of the world with my project and I'm crushing it. And it's been really fucking cool to see. So I think the last thing I saw from you, I don't know where I saw this, but I, I think I saw you made $26,000 in profit from your project Wish Tender just last month. It's growing really fast. So like since that, I did like another calculation and now it's already at 36, like 36, 35K in profit. We have a weird model where it's like revenue can either be considered like $700,000 or $50,000. So I kind of just focus right. on like 
profit. Still not profit. sure how to say revenue in my model, but Stripe balance change over the last 30 days. That is 36.46, something like that. Yeah. Doesn't mm. get more pure than profit. John O'Nolan mm. actually messaged me because he he checks the indie hackers uh, product directory <laughs> to see who's rising up the ranks, to see who's going to oh. catch Ghost. And he's like, you should talk to Dashiell because <laughs> she's crushing it right now. So it's cool to have you. Is $36,000 a month in profit the most money you've ever made? Oh, yeah. I've never had like a super real job before this. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, this is like your first business as an indie hacker. It's not like you started 20 failed businesses and then finally hit on the right one. Like, this is it. Yeah, this is my first. I've had like other non-tech businesses. I did like a fitness business, but that wasn't technical. It was it was a dance improv fitness and uh, was I was transitioning from being sort of an artist to trying to go into the business world and be an entrepreneur. And it's a very different way of thinking because when you're an artist, it's like, what do you want to show right. to the world? And when you're in business, it's what do other people want? So you have to mm -hmm. totally change your perspective. Oh my God, you nailed it. That's exactly it. I wonder how you figure this out because I feel like the vast majority of first-time business owners are in that artist mindset. And it seems like whatever craft a given person is really used to, that's the form of art that they care a lot about. So if developers are like, what framework am I going to use? I really care about this framework. And it's like, none of that stuff matters. Yeah. Yeah. How did you not get sucked into that? Uh, it was a lot of failure where I would create something. So not a tech business, but it could be putting on like a play with my friends or creating a film. I'd done like a lot of different art stuff growing up and thinking everybody would come see it if I did nothing or everybody would come to some event if I didn't do anything. So I had enough experience knowing mm, that doesn't really work. I can't just like make something I like and right. expect people to show up. So I was like, okay, this I want to do differently and I want to take it more seriously. Yeah. So now you're working on Wish Tender and I want to try to describe this. You tell me if I'm describing it correctly. So it's basically a giftless tool. So imagine I'm an influencer, or specifically, I'm an adult content creator. And I've got all these fans, and sometimes they wanna pay me by sending me gifts. And so I go to Wish Tender, and I create a list of all the gifts that I want and the cost of those gifts, and I send it out to my fans, and then my fans can go to my gift list on Wish Tender and they can buy those gifts for me, which really just means they give me the money to buy those gifts for myself. And I never have to give them my address. I can stay totally sort of hidden and protected. And you guys, as Wish Tender, you take a cut. And that's basically how it works. Pretty much, yeah. Like a wedding registry. That's right. what's mostly out there. Like Wedding registries are more built for family and friends. So your address goes on there, your phone number. So this is built for influencers where two-way anonymity is important. So I don't want people to find out where I live. Exactly. Yeah. I want them. I want them to buy me gifts, but I want them to know any, anything else about me. Yeah. And your main your main sort of market is like the adult content industry. Like these are typically, I would guess, women who are doing some type of porn, and they've like mostly probably male fans who are buying them gifts. Yeah, it's a lot of male fans, but it's actually a good split between male and female adult creators on the site. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm just like so curious, like how you how you got to this, because like you didn't like. If we go all the way back to the beginning, like in school, you studied fashion <laughs> or fashion design. 
nothing to do with the adult industry, like nothing to do with any of the stuff that you talked about. And then like somehow you made like a hard pivot from that to a totally different life. So in college, yes, I was doing fashion, but I, two years into it, I realized that fashion was not what I wanted to do, at least if you watch like Project Runway, they're, they're working so much. It's so much labor. Uh, they're often pulling all-nighters. So I was hallucinating from sleep deprivation and had all Whoa. this stress-causing issues in my body. And I was like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't know anything about uh, the fashion industry. I've never seen – Jenny, have you ever seen Project Runway? Do you, like, do you even I've know like, heard is? of it, and nothing comes to mind. So Yeah, I like, literally no. know nothing, nothing about it. So like, like what, what are the actual skills involved and like, like – like, I'm just like, what do you, like, what part of it is hard on your body? Yeah, it's it's all the construction stuff. It takes 10 minutes to, like, design something on paper. But then all the sewing, tailoring is, like, next-level sewing, so it's really intricate construction. Mm. Uh, and, and that was, like, a requirement in school. You had to take a tailoring class. It That was the one that made me super sleep-deprived and end up in the hospital. Just lots of, like, you don't know what's going on in these like suits you're wearing it's 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 all this sort of stuff you can't see and it it takes really long also if you don't have the perfect tables you're on the floor in weird positions for for like eight hours at a time so my back was in pain I was super super sleep deprived hallucinating you can injure yourself when you're hallucinating and dealing with sharp objects so uh I ended up I ended up in the hospital I think it was like a combination of just I had like two hours of sleep for a week and then just like one morning I like had crazy pain in my stomach. So I think it was, yeah, from that sleep deprivation. It's crazy like how many careers have this physical toll. An outsider looking in like wouldn't guess. Like a lot of computer programmers or um, video game players have repetitive strain injury. Like Channing, remember I used to play StarCraft all the time? Yeah. And like I looked up to all these professional StarCraft players and they were all like on their like third wrist surgery because their hands like are falling apart from banging on their keyboard you know a hundred times a minute 12 hours a day and my wrist started to hurt and i was like ah fuck this this is not worth it it's like a hidden cost of that career and so fashion is not so different Mm -hmm. yeah and like in you know every indie hacker probably i'm guessing has like shoulder problems i have wall mounted massage equipment for my uh posture (laughs) i forced myself to like stand up Every 30 minutes, like I have a timer and I literally force myself like the timer goes off and I'm like, all right, well, now I have to stand for 30 minutes. It doesn't matter how I feel, because otherwise I walk around looking like the letter C, like hunched over looking at my toes. (laughs) But with 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 tailoring, the way that you described it in my head, I'm like, is there room for disruption there? Like, do we really need to have humans who are on the floor because they don't have the right table setups and they're getting like these terrible injuries? Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's kind of how fashion has changed so much to be more. It's so much simpler than it used to be. We used to wear crazy corsets and huge dresses that took so much work. And I, over time, it seems fashion is going just towards simplification, just utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are like, oh, that's so sad. We used to have such beautiful clothes. But I don't know. I don't like being in the hospital. <laughs> All right, so you, you decide fashion is not for you. It's too hard on your body. There's not enough sleep. Uh, and then you get married and, and live in a van and kind of become like, I guess, were you learning to code while you were in the van? Like you kind of became an indie hacker on the road. Yeah, I, I took on the 100 Days of Code Challenge while on the road. I decided 
that lucid dreaming was my passion and that I had to learn something to bring some sort of value to the lucid dreaming community. There's all sorts of lucid dreaming teachers and writers, but like there wasn't a lot of people involved in tech. And I thought this is a great skill to bring to lucid dream world. So I thought, okay, I'm going to learn to code high level. I wanted to be a lucid dream tech entrepreneur, which is what I am aiming for still. But um, yeah, so I took on 100 days of code and turned into 365 days of code and then even went a little further until I started building Wish Tender. And, That's uh, how they get you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'm addicted to... First, it was hard, like coding every single day. I can't do it. But now I can't stop. You yeah, how do you do anything for 100 days? Or like, Did you miss a day? Was it like 365 consecutive days? I didn't miss a single day. And How do you, and how do, you was, do something for that long and not miss a day? It, it was, I was so nervous about doing it at first because I, in the van, you have limited power. You have limited internet. You're in a small enclosure with someone else who might be making noise or doing their own thing. So it's hard to right. build an everyday skill in that situation. And so it was especially hard, but I thought, like, I'm just really going to try. I'm going to prepare for every situation I think that's going to come up, like... My spouse is driving and he's listening to a, a podcast and it's really interesting. Okay, so I put headphones on with brown noise so I can't hear what's going on and I'm focused. And it was super hard at first, but eventually coding becomes really enjoyable. In, and then also you have to, you, a lot of the keeping up a habit like that is training yourself to say what you need. So we would go visit friends and they'd be like, hey, we're going to climb a waterfall tomorrow morning and be like, okay, but whatever's going to happen, I'm going to take a break sometime to code. And there's no negotiation around that. <laughs> I'm going to code on the waterfall. <laughs> so the, oh, yeah. the, the funny, <laughs> the, the funny deal here is that I'm all about this. Like I'm listening to you and I'm like, oh yeah, me too. I love that. Like, what are your other commitments? What are your other, and with Cortland, he's like the exact opposite. So recently Cortland and I went and hung out and every morning I'm like, all right, I've got this like two and a half hour block where I got to like do my morning routine. <laughs> and he's like, like, hey, let's go out. Let's go out and have like breakfast or brunch somewhere. And we actually kind of got into like a tussle over it. Right. We he's were, like, why we do you were, need to do this we now? Were in, we were in Italy, a place we've never been before, <laughs> surrounded by amazing food beautiful architecture just like the most beautiful cities you've ever seen and this guy just wants to sit in the airbnb until like 2 p.m until he finishes his morning routine so yeah i was really strict with myself this first year that i and i did other challenges too i did 200 and something days of math 200 something days of meditation 100 days of discomfort i did all these different ones i was really obsessed with really getting myself to be disciplined but once i got past that then I could do the, okay, I'm taking a morning off because it's so ingrained in me. All right. So you were learning how to code in a van. You're doing all sorts of cool stuff we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. But at some point during learning to code, you came up with the idea for Wish Tender or like it sort of fell into your lap. And that's what you're working on now that's like absolutely crushing it. How did that happen? Because most people, I think, stumble on the step of like they don't know what a good business idea looks like. And I think if you get the, like, the idea right at first, it saves you so much work later on. Yeah, I was really looking for something that would be profitable. I, I loved, so I said I wanted to be a tech, at least a dream tech entrepreneur. But I, 
I didn't want to start with that because that's super new. Like you look at Elon Musk and he has PayPal. That was his first, you know, and then now he does SpaceX and Neuralink and all this cool stuff. And I kind of wanted my version of his PayPal. I wanted something that was just more guaranteed to work, more validated, that was just pure entrepreneurship and making me money and learning about business and then go into the stuff I'm really passionate about. So I was just looking really hard for something that I thought would work. I got all these different ideas and I was really trying to validate them honestly. Right. So I went through like several different ideas and Wish Tender was brought to me by a friend who wanted something like this. They wanted a wish list uh, on their website. They wanted me to build it for them. And then they were going to give me 50% of the profit. Was it like they heard like you knew how to code? Yeah, they knew I was looking for something. And they also knew I was coding. And if this one person is willing to give me 50%, there's probably more people willing to give me less percent. What does your validation process look like? Like when you came up on an idea or your friend gave you this idea, like, did you run it through some sort of checklist? And if so, like what was on that checklist? I went through some random articles that said what you should ask people, basically. And then I put together a survey and I had some friends log into my Twitter account and DM hundreds of people with the survey. And at the end of the survey, it said, if you're interested in this project, would you be open to a phone call? So we did a few phone calls and a few surveys. That that was for Wish Tender. Before Wish Tender, I, I also had some friends actually go to the beach and do surveys. Super <laughs> analog. Style. Wait, who are these who are these friends that are just doing yeah, you just have a market team of research? Validators. <laughs> yeah, who are okay, these so, how did, what is your pitch to your friends? I, so I'm not actually I'm usually not really comfortable with having people do things for me, but I found <laughs> out that if you make a visual demo and you make it like you put into somebody's head what this thing is going to look like, they are really excited to help. So for every idea, I would I would explain it to somebody and they would be like, I, I don't care. And then I would show them a visual demo like the next week and they'd be like, this is a trillion dollar idea. I want to be. <laughs> so this is exactly the opposite process of being a web designer where if you have a client and you show them like your first mock-up, they assume immediately that you've built out the entire back end, the entire thing exists and that like it's going to take you like no time and they should pay you nothing. And so when I would like make websites and apps for people, I would do the exact opposite. I would do the UI last. I would make it look like shit. I would build all the back end stuff first and talk about how long it was taking because there's something about that visual thing where people just immediately think it's awesome and done. So that makes sense. That's the same effect yeah. that it's working yeah. against you as a web developer. Exactly. Right. And I would put examples in the mock-up of like somebody using it who's famous and like or you know and, like so it, it was like wow like this is this is great you know and so those friends would uh yeah they just got really excited They're like i want to help they did fizzle out later but it was helpful for marketing for market research <laughs> do you tell your friends like oh yeah get involved like, I'll give you equity or I'll pay you or you just like you get to be part of the story. Like, what's the pitch to get someone to go on Twitter and DM a bunch of people? Yeah, they just want to help. And also these were wow. friends who I mean, they're, my, they're really my family. It's like my cousin, my sister, my spouse, like people who are really close to me. So it's not 
um, somebody who thinks I would do anything. Like, if okay. they stayed involved, cool. I would give them equity. But they didn't. They just love well, you, and they like your story, and they see you doing yeah. some cool stuff, and they just get excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been building an Airbnb with my ex-girlfriend, and it's, like, very out there and uniquely designed. And anytime any of our friends walk in, they instantly do the same thing. Because they're, like, in this space, and they see it's covered with all these plants and vines, and they just immediately grab a hammer and just, like, want to start helping. I think it's maybe the same phenomenon of just, like, people want to be part of something that looks cool. Yeah, oh, that's cool that you're working with your ex-girlfriend. Yeah. Well, she wasn't my ex when we started. <laughs> we oh, started. okay. This is, a, this is a recent development. <laughs> but now she is, and it's still good. We're still working on it, and it's, it's all good. That's good. That's good. All right, yeah. so you, you, you get this idea for Wish Tender. You magically convince all your friends to basically sign into your Twitter account and DM people to validate the idea. What kind of responses did you get? I, I assume they're pretty good ones because you decided to do the idea. Well, yeah, we, we DM'd a lot of people, but we didn't get, it was like, what was it, like 8% response rate, but pe- people reacted really excited. They they said, you know, they want something like this, and what was out there was really bad, and then I did stuff that you're not supposed to do. I told them the idea, and I said, do you like it, which you're really not supposed to do. I didn't know that at the time, because people will be polite, and they'll say, oh, yeah, it's a good idea, but their response was like, whoa that's amazing and people were saying they would give a bigger percent than i thought that was the other that was the other reason and who are these people that you were messaging like how did you find out like like you get this idea your friend wants this gift list thing for their website like who else did you message to try to figure out if they would want it uh different adult content creators i I didn't really know there were like these sub niches of adult content creators so i just searched anyone who had only fans in their bio or right um, I think we might have tried like Twitch streamers and stuff too, but it didn't seem like they wanted it. Wasn't and this asked. was all on Twitter? This was all Twitter DMs or did you ever go off platform to reach out to people? I found it hard to go off platform. Like I did a little bit on some forums. I did a little bit on Reddit, but because I had a good reputation on Twitter, I thought Twitter was the best place to do it. Cool. All right. So you decided to, do this because people are like like they're telling you they'll give you a huge cut like what kind of cut were they saying they would give you like how enthusiastic were they i asked you know what would be fair and i kept thinking oh it's gonna be like three percent five percent but they were like oh like ten percent of course and then i looked wow. at that it makes sense now when i look at different companies like Substack does ten percent i think but i didn't at the time that sounded like a lot to me it ends up well, not being that I've much, talked but. to like some other adult creators. Like I did an episode with Savannah Solo and Ayla. Yeah, I listened to that one that was like really uh, when I was building this and I really remember that. Yeah. Yeah, it was <laughs> um, a really but, fun one. But like yeah. they were both on I think Ayla has since quit, but they were both on OnlyFans and OnlyFans takes like twenty or something, like a huge cut of the yeah. revenue. Yeah, and you are paying for more when you use something like Wish Tender because you're paying for privacy, you're pr- paying for a bit of chargeback protection. Um, if you just opened a, a wedding registry, you wouldn't get privacy. You wouldn't get all this protection. But you would get – it would charge like 2%. Yeah. So no other product is filling that space for them. And at what point like, did you in this process like say, this is it. I'm confident. Like This is the business I'm going to start. Like What flipped that switch for you? After getting enough responses, I think I still wasn't totally sure, but it wasn't so difficult to code. And I thought even if I even if it's not a good idea and I launch it and nobody wants to use it, 
it's a great first training project for learning software because it's not too difficult. It's just a two-sided, sort of two-sided market with profile page and GIFs. And so I didn't really think I could lose even if it didn't take off. I was like, there's no failing here because I'm learning stuff. I'm, it just didn't feel like I could fail. This is like basically part of your 365 days of code is like start a business and worst case scenario, just learning how to code. Yeah, yeah. And I had spent um, a year and a half doing the 365 days of code at this point. It was like 365 days plus some. I didn't know it was going to take – it took me a year to build Wish Tender. I didn't know it was going to take that long. So that was the other thing. I I, I thought it was going to take me like six weeks, and it, <laughs> it ended up taking me a year. Um, definitely people were sa- were worried for me, like fellow founders – you yeah, know, they thought, oh, you didn't really validate this enough, and you spent a year, and like you probably wasted your time. <sighs> yeah, I didn't really feel like it was failing because I had multiple goals in mind, which was making a successful business was one of those goals, but also just learning how to code and learning how to make a business. All right, Corlin, let's be honest. How long did, did it take you to get to anywhere near a comparable amount of success with your business? I so mean, Andy Akers was bought well before I made, was making $36,000 a month. Like, this is blinding success. Yeah, it's yeah. super fast. I did. I think I did. I think it was, like, what was really helpful to me was happening to pick the right idea that just had the potential to grow. But either way, yeah, I was okay with however it went. Yeah, of course. All right, so you're, you're like, whatever happens, I'm cool. What, like, what are the next steps? Like, how did you actually get it off the ground? Launching was a whole thing because probably you relate to not really knowing when you're ready to launch. So I was doing too much. Uh, I had a friend. I, I asked a friend, "How do you like put a delete? How do you delete accounts?" And he's like, and he had launched already, and he was like, "I don't have a delete button." And I was surprised because that's illegal in Europe. And and I was like, what if you go to jail? He's like, don't worry about this stuff yet. Like, just manually delete it. Worry about this stuff later. Just launch. So I figured, okay, it's working. I don't have to worry about every detail. I'm going to launch it. And, um, you know, I thought everybody, I thought all my pre-signups would crash my server and sign up. And But it was very slow to start. And I got nervous. It was like two or three months in. And it wasn't gaining the traction I was expecting. And I thought, oh, my God, everybody was right. I spent a year and I wasted my time. And I asked all these, I asked so many people, so many other either pre-launch founders or new founders, what am I doing wrong? And they had all this advice about you got to change, you got to change your design. You got to, you didn't really validate. You made all these mistakes. You have to redo this. Like, I thought I wanted to just, quit because I thought, okay, I didn't really validate this. I messed up my market research. And somebody had said to me, you have to give it at least two years. And I thought that's way too long to work on a project that's not going anywhere. So I thought, I'm going to give it six months. And if it doesn't go anywhere, I'm quitting. And I was very reluctant to give it six more months because I was at this stage where I thought it was the responsible thing to quit because I thought right. I just have to accept my mistake. Um, so I reluctantly did six more months. And we got, we got traction way before then, and it became clear way before then that I was doing everything right or mostly right. It just needed more time. So all the advice I got about 
I was doing this wrong. I was doing that wrong. It was just I needed to be persistent and give it more time. It's three months is not a lot of time. You had an awesome tweet about this where you're like, there's five indie hacker myths that you didn't listen to when you were building. And it's like you were saying, there's literally people who are messaging you, telling you that you're doing it the wrong way. And like some somehow, some way you had the confidence to just ignore them because it would have been so easy to just like to pivot or to follow the advice of people who are like maybe more experienced than you. But like, you know, a couple of them on your list are like, um, build for yourself, right? But you didn't really build for yourself. You built for other people who needed the product and would pay for it. And like that worked. And another one is launch fast. But like instead of doing that, like you took a year to code it and then you validated the idea up front. Like you weren't just like spitting out a different idea every week. You stuck with it. You know, the biggest thing I think was learning how to talk to customers, becoming better at it and making it a habit. So I think a lot of people are scared to talk to customers. It's different. You know, you're, you're, you're a coder. Maybe you're a little shy. I actually was really... I remember learning how to do these interviews and I was just nervous of what the customers would think of me, which is not what you should be thinking when you're trying to interview a customer. It should be making them feel comfortable and they're trying to impress you. It's just natural, even if it's a small company, a head of a company to reach out. Like they, It feels intimidating. To, so you're supposed to be making them feel comfortable. And my head was in the wrong place. So I had to learn this just this new way of talking to people how to get them to say what they really mean. And a book that really helped with that, I actually learned about it on here, was is Michelle Hansen's book, Deploy Empathy. That was super helpful. Great book. Yeah, great book. So many really good examples in there, and, and she actually has recordings of how she talks to people. So that that's like the truth. What people think is the truth of what you have to do, not what some indie hacker who got lucky thinks. It's like, what are your <laughs> Right. And then just small changes, not overhauling everything, like asking people, why did you join? And then putting their answers into your marketing. Simple things like, and, and we got really good at Twitter too. We, we copied a, how Gymshark does their Twitter marketing. They create tweets that are from the user's perspective and then the users want to share. And I don't see a lot of indie hackers doing that. But um, so we didn't tweet as a wish list. We tweeted as a wish list user. So it was like shareable from their perspective. That was that was really useful too. So that that was I like I love our that. Mind. That's so smart. Mm-hmm. So I'm like on Gemshark's Twitter, uh, and it's like a tweet from Gemshark will be like, "We end the gem this summer" in all caps, and then it's like a bunch of people who love their products and work out a lot retweet that for exactly the reason that you're saying because it's like it's something exactly. that they would say, and it like. It promotes the vibe that they want to promote to their own followers. So that's what they retweet. Yeah, exactly. Like for okay. So for like a, a product like yours, like what does the marketing look like? Is it mostly tweeting? Is it mostly like word of mouth growth? Like how did you spin that engine up and get it to the point where you're getting more and more traction? Because like you've been doing like interviews and like tweets over the, like the last year about like your revenue. It's crazy how it's grown. I mean, like last December, it was significantly smaller. Like it was you know, single digit thousands, I think, and then doubled in January, like a few months ago, it was like $14,000 a month in profit. And then now mm-hmm. it's like 36 last month was 26. This month's 30. How's, how's it growing so fast? Yeah. One thing is that word of mouth is really built into this business because people share their wish lists. But we focused in the beginning, we did a lot of DMing. So it's a free way to reach people on Twitter we sent you know 60 to 100 DMs every day to people we thought would want to use it. 
Then we got a tool that helped us do that. It would, so we'd send like mass DMs. Not personalized. People will tell you personalize that. It depends on your, what's that word? Like LTV, like how much each customer makes you. But our our customers don't make us a lot. So it's not worth doing a really personalized message to each person. So we just changed the name, sent it out. And most people didn't think it was spammy because we targeted the right people and they were really glad that we brought it to them. And then like in the beginning, if people came to me with a problem, I took it really seriously. I might even get on a video call with them. I would treat them like they were this high priced customer, but they're really like not making me a lot of money. It's just like, I do things that don't scale. And they, and then they would be like, I had the best experience with this company. And they became huge fans and really, we built evangelists. We post kind of funny things from their perspective. And there's, there's just like a ton of word of mouth. We haven't spent really anything on marketing. That's crazy. That's like the ideal indie hacker business. And like, who's, who's we, by the way? Like, how much of it is just you? Oh. Who's helping you out? So it's, it started out as just me, and then my spouse got involved when I was like, I'm having trouble writing DMs. It was taking me like all day to write seven personalized DMs, and then he started helping me. Then we realized we shouldn't be writing personalized DMs. But first he was my assistant, then he was community manager, then he promoted himself to director of operations. We don't even know what that means. But we just work together. He does pretty much a lot of customer service, stuff that he can do. And then he forwards it to me if it's stuff I can do. Uh, so, yeah, it's two, two people. Would you consider yourselves like co-founders in some way? Or is um, it like more he's your employee? Like how do you like, – because even having a relationship, like that makes it trickier to run a business too. I feel kind of possessive that I'm the founder. But he became sort of the co-founder post, post-launch. Yeah. That's how Channing is. He's my, oh, my okay. co-founder, but like a late co-founder, which I think is honestly yeah. one of the best the best setups. Because you have someone who's like bought in and they help and they're just as important as you are. But it's also like, I think easier in the early days to just make decisions really fast when it's just you by yourself. Yeah. And it, so you guys are brothers? Yeah, we're twins. We are indeed. You're twins. Oh, my God. Whoa. Yeah. I'm, I'm the uh, yeah. two minute older one. <laughs> it's useful when you're with somebody who like knows you really well. And yeah. A random co-founder, like I have, I have a, it's like a lot of emotional support, you know, something when you hit those really low points and you have somebody who knows you really well, it's like, it's not just somebody who can help, but it's like somebody who can help your, lift your spirits. It's true. I feel like uh, startups are kind of like an emotional roller coaster, and the stereotypical co-founder pair is like two nerdy dudes with no emotional intelligence <laughs> who don't know each other very well, like trying to start a company together. So I think like, I mean, Stripe was founded by two brothers. They know each other super well and have their entire lives. Andy Hackers, you and your spouse are doing it together. And I feel like that's like the secret hack is to not do it by yourself, to have someone who's in there with you, but somebody who you like have already proven you can sort of emotionally support each other. You can communicate well. You respect each other's methods of like thinking and making decisions because like you need that to make it work. Otherwise, And then on top of that, if you <laughs> if you end up running into trouble, you can work it out without it being like existential. For yeah, example, Cortland, exactly. what yeah. was it? Jesse Patel, the founder of uh, Workflowy, I think he wrote a blog post about how he and his co-founder went and had to have like psychotherapy. Like they had like relationship Yeah, they got a couple's therapist. Right. And, and like wow. they are not related. There's just two dudes. Well, yeah, that's what you got to do. Otherwise, I mean, like I think a huge percentage, Y Combinator released some stats about it. Like a huge percentage of startups fail because of co-founder issues. 
where the business is going fine, but like the co-founders don't get along. And it's like, you're making oh. these like, you know, life or death decisions, like not for your life, but like for the life of your business. And if like, you're not making those as somebody who like, you respect the way that they think, like that shit can spiral pretty fast. I don't even know how I would go about working with someone so closely that I wasn't married to because a lot of disagreements I fix by like like kissing him or something, like hugging him and like <laughs> and it's a different uh, it's a different We kind we of don't do that. Not <laughs> happening with any hackers. <laughs> well, it's a different kind of a uh, management style. Yeah, it's a different kind of love. So now so now what? You got uh, this business that's spinning out way more cash than you ever thought it could. Like you've got your marketing strategy dialed in. Mm-hmm. I love that it's that's like a naturally viral product because like you said, like people share their gift lists with their fans and then their fans get used to using that gift list. And if they become fans of other people, they probably say like, you should get this gift list so I can buy you stuff. It's, it just seems like it's going to keep working. Like what now? Do you have competitors? Do you have like lofty goals? Do you have other things you want to work on? Yeah, I would like to get Wishender to a point where it's sort of automated, where I can step back a little bit from it, whether that's selling it or outsourcing a lot of it. I, I want to go into tech entrepreneurship with Lucid Dreaming. That's my goal. Okay, so I want to talk about this a lot because I don't know anything about Lucid Dreaming. And if like, like, I wouldn't have been able to tell you if this is a thing that people really do consistently or if it's just kind of a myth that you can control it so like is this something like do you lucid dream all the time i used to so i'm not a i'm not really a natural lucid dreamer Uh, there are some people who just have them like something about their brain they're wired to have them every night but you can also train yourself so i had had a handful when i was uh, up to age 18 my mom told me about them and after she told me about them just knowing about them i had a few of them but then in college, I went on a diet, and at night, I would have regular dreams, non-lucid dreams, about foods I couldn't eat, so brownies, pizza. In the, in the dream, I would take a tiny bite of pizza, and it would taste really real and really good. And then I'd say, okay, no, you can't have any more. You're on a diet. Like, put it down. Then I'd wake up, and I'd be like, oh, my God. Like, I could have had this experience of finishing that whole pizza and <laughs> if I knew I was dreaming. So... I, I thought, okay, I'm going to learn to lucid dream. And, and so I went from having basically no lucid dreams to having three every night in five months just through this what? like rigorous training of your brain. And I was eating the whole Whole Foods hot bar, everything I wanted every night while having this super strict diet during the day. What a sales pitch for lucid dreaming. This is the way that you can cheat on your diet. Like you can be disciplined when you're awake. Don't worry. Just, yeah. just go to, just take a nap in the middle of the day. I can't even imagine the terrible things that I would get into in my dreams if I could just at will control what I dreamed about every single night. Oh yeah, there's there's some terrible things that I yeah. All all of the above. Check check check. <laughs> so like okay, what's the, what's the process to to like how do you like how did you train yourself to become a lucid dreamer? Like what do you do to control them? The basic idea is. You train yourself to recognize when something is off. And when something is off, you say, hmm, this is dreamy. Okay, am I in a dream or am I awake? And then you do something, for example, like dropping a pen. And if it falls funny, oh, you recognize, okay, that's not, this is not reality. So that's called a reality check. And that's, if you've seen Inception, they do them in Inception. Right, yeah. They've got their little totems and they're constantly spinning the tops Mm -hmm. and stuff to check if it's a dream. So you really do that. That's real. Yeah, that is a real thing. 
You don't have to have a totem though. The my favorite one is just you hold your nose, keep your mouth closed, and then try to breathe. So, like this, and and then you like do you do this like all the time in real life? I do. It's yeah. just a, a habit that you just like you're just at the grocery store and you hold your nose and try to breathe. The more I do it, the more lucid dreams I have. But if I was being really disciplined, I would have done it right when I got on this podcast. That's what I usually do, like when I see new people. <laughs> or, you know, and this is an unusual situation. Like, I love this podcast and I'm on it. So I should have done it right when I got on, but I didn't. But normally when I'm dreaming. Wait, why don't you do it right now? Maybe you're dreaming. Well, I just as we did speak. it. Like, I just <laughs> did it explaining it. To Who's you. to say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've explained this to people and did the reality check to show them to only to find out I actually was in a dream. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Are there already businesses in lucid dreaming or like is anybody like making a lot of money or is it just like limited to communities or books and stuff? Like in tech, there's there's some stuff. There's definitely a lot of coaching. Uh, there's retreats. But in tech, there's lucid dream induction masks. But I don't think any of them work super well. Some of them work okay. But what you do is you the high, the high end ones, you put this basically like a sleeping mask that has a lot of um, embedded uh, systems in it, so little you know microchips and stuff. And then you, you you wear it, you sleep with it. It detects when you're dreaming, and then it flashes lights in your eyes or it plays a sound in your ear. And you're supposed to hopefully incorporate that stimuli into the dream. And when you see it, it helps you recognize, oh, that's that mask that's signaling to me that I'm in a dream. Okay, let me reality check. Yes, I'm in a dream. Right. So it's like a tech-induced reality check. Yeah. If it actually works and you can consistently induce lucid dreams with people and like in some sort of with some sort of technology or product, like who wouldn't want to do that? I know people who have nightmares every night like terrible uncontrollable nightmares and they hate it and like they don't know what to do about it and it's like they don't like sleeping that much because they just have nightmares all the time and if they had something where it's like instead of sleeping being this terrible scary thing it's actually this wonderful like magic land of whatever you want eat all the pizza you want never get fat you know eat what you're allergic to hang out with your favorite celebrities like i don't know if that's an accurate description of lucid dreaming but like that sounds way better than anything else yeah that's that's pretty accurate um especially for like first timers like later you get into it and you're doing all this like work on your subconscious and you get bored. Oh, of the... okay. <laughs> but I, I am still eating junk food in my lucid dream. So I, I like it for that reason. But yeah, it's, you know, and it's, and it's two hours every night, you know, that you could be using more efficiently, whether it's to have fun or whether it's to be productive in, in some way. Um, yeah, tell me more about like this expert. Because I'm the I would be an amateur lucid dreamer. What do the experts do that like the first timers don't? Yeah. So one thing that a lot of artists will do is you know your brain it's it is on another level. So you might if you're a musician like turn on the radio and listen to a new song. Okay, and that's a song that obviously you just created in your head, but you didn't have a lot of it didn't take a lot of effort because you're in this weird state where you can create things instantly. And so you wake up and then you record that song that was just played to you uh, in your dream radio, which you wrote. I've, um, I've had something similar happen where in my dream, I was like rapping a song and I was like this amazing freestyler. And I just like oh every verse, I was just like hitting it. And then I woke up and I was like, holy shit, how did I do that? And I tried to write down the lyrics. 
total gibberish. <laughs> so I'm really curious oh, yeah. about this in, in, in the sense that like, I know a lot of people who will get like high, like they'll, they'll smoke weed. They'll have to them brilliant ideas and then they'll write them down. And then when they're sober again, they'll look at their own ideas and they'll be like, this okay. is a terrible idea. It just felt smart <laughs> yeah. when I was, when I was really high. That happens too. So, but, but at the same time, there are people who take acid and do create really amazing things. Yeah. Like, so I had a presser at MIT who smoke a lot of weed and did a lot of shrooms. And then he was like a mathematician and he would use that to help his research. When you put your brain in another state, whether it's weed is good for certain things, acid is good for certain things, acid is good for, I think it's good for like learning languages, retention. It's just like, it's another brain state to explore. There is some research about what can be done in the dream state, but definitely people use it to solve problems, like hard problems, like coding problems, stuff like that. People use it to write music, uh, creative inspiration. And then there's a lot of using it to do therapy on yourself in a way, can get into your subconscious and heal yourself. Well, listen, this is super fascinating. I can talk about this stuff all day. One thing I always want to ask before I let you get out of here is what's one thing that you would like other indie hackers to know? Something that you've experienced that you think, you know, maybe others aren't thinking about, others aren't considering that you think that, you know, maybe would have helped you on your journey. Yeah, the biggest thing for me was when I started, I put everybody on a pedestal because it seemed like everybody knew more than me. And I think I would have benefited from knowing, you know, to take advice with a grain of salt, like who's giving you the advice? Are they a successful founder? Are they a one-time successful founder? Could they have gotten lucky? Most successful founders, they're figuring everything out. So there's no real hard advice, I think. And listen to what people have to say, but don't think it's a hard rule. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Totally. Super true. Anyway, Dashiell, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Can you let listeners know where they can go to find out more about wish tender and you personally and maybe eventually like your sort of lucid dreaming stuff because that stuff's fascinating i'm most active on twitter dash barkas so that's the best place to follow me but i'm also on linkedin and instagram linkedin search my name instagram same dash barkas but yeah twitter is probably the best cool thanks so much 